Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. I appreciate Dale and Chris uh, doing those songs for us this morning. Um, I know we didn't have our ladies up here with us, and so we're we're missing half of our worship team, but I appreciate y'all stepping up and um, and doing those. Those songs are so fitting for what we're going to be talking about this morning. And uh, it being Advent, you know, one of the things that we do is we, um, we try to focus all of our um, Scripture reading, all of our singing, everything we do toward preparing us to celebrate the first coming of Christ and what that meant, and preparing us to be ready for Him at His second coming. And so Advent is just a season to where we put our focus on the, the, uh, the birth and the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and preparing us to celebrate what that means. And then ultimately preparing us so that when He comes again, we're ready to receive Him. And we're, we're part of the congregation that can say, Lord, come quickly. I don't know if you can say that today or not, but I can say that today. Lord, come quickly. Uh, I'm ready for you to come today, right now. And, um, and so I pray that um, before this Advent season is over that you can join us in that same spirit of, Lord, come quickly. We're ready. <clears throat> Mr. Riley Peterson. Where is Mr. Riley at? Come on up. Riley is going to read our Scripture for us this morning. It's going to be from Psalm chapter 22. Again, we're doing Advent in the Psalms. And so Psalm chapter 22, you can keep your seat um, as he reads. Whenever you're ready. Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the priests of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he, he who took me from the womb. You made me trust. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Yet not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me 
and the dust of death. Four dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide their garments among them. And for casting, for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell you, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He is not hidden his face from him, but has heard when you he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. <laughs> You're almost there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship you. For a kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Amen. Good job, Riley. Thank you. <laughs> now, if you would light me two of the purple ones, please. <laughs> Let's go to Lord in prayer and we'll get into our scripture. Father, we come to You this morning and we just want to say thank You for, um, for Your Word. Father, we thank You that, um, Lord, what we're, what we're seeing here is a picture of what You did for us while we were yet sinners. Father, You gave Your Son's life for us, a ransom, so that we could be set free and we could be made right with You. Father, I pray this morning that You would help us to see Jesus in this psalm. Father, I pray this morning that... Um, uh, this church service would not be about entertainment as if you were some kind of a court gesture. But Father, instead, I pray that we would come here truly seeking to hear from You. Father, that we want to, we want to hear Your Word and we want to magnify Your, your love, magnify Your grace in, in what we hear from You today. Father, we love You and we pray that You forgive us where we fall so short of showing You that on a daily basis. But Lord, we do thank You and we do love You for everything that You are to us. Forgive us where we fail You. Be with us today in this service and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is our um, second week in Advent. And as you know, I'm trying to do something different this year and I'm, I'm trying to look in the Psalms and I want to be able to see Jesus in the Psalms. And we'll see why that is again here in just a few moments. I'll read a scripture to you to help you understand why we're doing that. But 
In the immediate context of this psalm, chapter 22, I want you to understand, first and foremost, it is a psalm of David. It is a song that, that David is singing as he is in a very dark trial in his life, and he's reminding himself in this struggle, in this very dark time, that God is holy, God is faithful, God is trustworthy, and even when he is surrounded on all sides by enemies that are trying to devour him, God is still good. And God should still be praised and God should still be trusted. And what we see in this is that there are many things that David mentions that David never actually experienced. For instance, um, where it talks about all my bones are out of joint. From what we understand of all of David's trials, David never had a trial to where all of his bones were actually out of joint. Uh, they have pierced my hands and my feet. There was never a trial to where David was pierced in his hands and his feet. Um, I can count all my bones. There was never a situation to where David went through that he could actually count his bones. They divided my garments. They cast lots for them. There are so many situations in this psalm that we understand that this was not ultimately about David. The truth of the matter is, this psalm was a psalm that described um, crucifixion. In, in so many ways. And crucifixion would not even be invented, if you will, for another thousand years after this psalm is written. The Romans are the ones that bring it to pass. At this point, the Jews stoned people for punishment is what they did. And so all of these things that we're reading here, um, uh, they, they do not immediately apply to David in the way that he wrote them. So we have to ask the question, what do we take from that? What does that mean? Well, here's one thing that we know for sure. Jesus quoted this psalm at least twice on the cross. The first time He quoted it was when He said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Alright? And then the other time He quoted it is when He said, It is finished. It is completed. I have done it. It is, it, it is complete. And so we see that Jesus used this psalm uh, twice on uh, the cross as He was being crucified. But then we also know this, in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 31, we have a scripture that tells us that David spoke these psalms as a prophet. Notice what it says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, so there we see that they understood that David was a prophet. One that actually spoke things under the inspiration of God that spoke toward events that were to take place in the future. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now this is talking about another psalm that David wrote, but my point is still the same. We understand that there are many times in the Psalms that when David or whoever the writer was was writing, they weren't actually necessarily talking specifically about everything that they were dealing with, but instead they were pointing to something that was coming. Um, Jesus understood this in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He's speaking to some of His disciples and look what He says. Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus understood that David writing in the Psalms was actually speaking about things that would be fulfilled in his own life. And so I don't want you to think it weird that we go back and David wrote this a thousand years before crucifixion came or before Christ died on the cross and yet you're going to see that the details of this psalm were speaking toward the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. Finally, the apostles understood that this psalm was ultimately about Jesus' crucifixion. In John chapter 19, verse 24, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So there again, the apostles, the disciples understood that when we read the Psalms, that many times what you're looking at are prophecies that were not going to be fulfilled until they were ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus Himself. Now, let's look at this psalm, Psalm 22, in light of both facts, if you will. First off, that it was written for David's immediate context. He was going through a dark trial. He was writing about his own personal feelings, about the struggles that he was dealing with. But ultimately, we see its fulfillment in the darkest trial of all, the one that our Lord and Savior would go through. So in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1 through 2, I want you to notice, and I'm going to outline it for you. So if you're taking notes or you're writing in your Bible, you could draw a bracket around verses 1 and 2 and you could write this. A divine abandonment. A divine abandonment is what we see take place here. Notice what he says. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Why have you abandoned me? My God. A divine abandonment right here. You are not just the the God down the street, the God of my fathers, the God of my grandfathers. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? And then notice what he says next. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. This word groaning can also be translated the roaring of a lion. David is going through such a trial right now that the way that he prays is not like a God is great, God is good, let us thank you for our food. But instead, David's prayers are coming out like a lion's roar. And yet God seems so far away that it feels like He has been forsaking. And so in verses 1 and verses 11, we see it again. In verse 11, he says, Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one here. Trouble is near, there's no one here, and even you, Lord, seem like you're so far away. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. And so throughout this psalm we see David and we see that it it feels like to him that in this dark trial that God is just nowhere to be found. Trouble is here and there is no one that is here, not even my God. And how many times maybe have you been in situations in your life where you felt that way? Trouble is here, and God, it feels like you're not even here. 
It feels like you have forsaken me. On the one hand, David felt what it felt like to be forsaken by God, even though God had promised, I will never, what? Leave you nor forsake you. And so, David on the one hand felt like God had forsaken him, but God had not forsaken him. And we see that later on in the psalm. God was silent. God had withdrawn for a period, for a reason. But on the other hand, in the ultimate fulfillment of Christ on the cross, we do see a divine abandonment. Believe it or not, we actually see God the Father, as we sung in the song earlier, He turns His face away as the sin of all the world is laid on the Son, Jesus Christ. The, the only begotten Son, the one who had been in eternal fellowship with His Father, had known nothing but loving relationship, is now for the first time in all eternity being separated from His Father. Now, for those of you that have experienced... How many of you in here, the holidays are hard for you because of the death of a loved one? The holidays are tough. The holidays are hard. You're seeing this empty seat. You're seeing this tough. And, and, and you understand because you feel the pain of separation, right? But the truth of the matter is this. You can't even come close to the pain that Jesus felt when He uttered these words, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Because this was the first time in all eternity that the only perfect relationship that had ever been had been separated for the first time. Let's see why. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Look at what this says here. He Himself bore in His own body, on the tree, He bore our sins in His own body. Now think about this. God the Son... He bore in His body our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by His wounds that you have been healed from your sin curse, from your sin sickness. Now think about that. He bore. What does it mean to bear something? They were on Him. They were in His body. The perfect sinless Son of God took yours and my sins and He took them in on Himself and bore them. And how many of you know that the Bible tells us that God Almighty cannot even look upon evil? And so God Himself places the sin of all mankind onto God the Son and He bears it in His body on the cross. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, look at what this says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus Christ Himself became a curse. God the Son became a curse because of your sin and my sin. And He did it by being hung on the tree, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then one last Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look at what this says. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now think about that. 
He became a curse, right? He bore our sins in His body. And He made Him to what? To be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross of Calvary, a great exchange took place. God took all of your sin, all of your evil, and He placed it on the body and in the body of Jesus Christ. He made Him a curse. And He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. And in that same moment, He took the righteous life that Jesus lived. Because remember, the birth of Jesus was about Him coming and living out the fulfillment of what you and I were supposed to live, that perfect life for the glory of God. He lives that perfect life for God, and then God takes that perfect righteousness and He puts it on all those who put their faith and their trust on the curse on the cross, on being redeemed, on the ransom being paid. And that great exchange takes place. But during that time, you need to understand, something very dark took place. The Father turned His face away. And for a moment in time, the fellowship between God the Father and God the Son was broken while your sin was placed on Him and His righteousness was placed on you. You remember in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 through 46, the Bible records for us a darkness that took place on the cross of Calvary whenever Jesus had finally paid the price It says from the sixth hour there was darkness, and the sixth hour would have been around 12 noon, all right? So from around 12 noon, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, which would have been about 3 p.m. And so for three hours, there was darkness over the whole land while all of your sin was placed on Him and while His righteousness was placed on those who put faith and trust in Him. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, during this darkness, all this is taking place. And then Jesus cries out and He quotes this psalm and He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I believe that all this is, is Jesus crying out in His agony, in His roaring like a lion. You remember how David put it in Psalms? Crying out in His roaring like a lion. He knows why God has to turn His face away. But at the same time, He knows the pain of this divine abandonment, this separation that He feels from God the Father, and He experiences the payment of sin, the debt of sin for the first time in all eternity. For the first time, He actually feels what it feels like for sin to be put on Him and to be separated from God Almighty. That's the reason why I asked them to sing the song this morning, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It paints that picture of Him on the cross. It paints in picture that that as 
as wounds marred the chosen one, is what the song says. He brings many sons to glory, but in the process of it, the Father turns His face away. And there is an abandonment that takes place. And then in Psalm chapter 22, the next thing we see in verses 3 to 5, again, if you're taking notes, we see a declaration of faith. Now, it's my belief that Jesus quotes this psalm because He's drawing strength off of it. Now, Jesus is a man just like you and I, and He is also fully God. He has two natures. He is God in the flesh. So here Jesus is, and He is going through the darkest trial of His life. He has just prayed in the garden the night before, Father, if there is any other way, any other way, let this cup pass from me. But was there any other way? There was no other way. And now here He is on the cross in the darkest time of His life, and He needs strength to endure the only way for mankind to be saved. The only way for your ransom to be paid. And He quotes this psalm. And part of this psalm is that He reminds Himself that God is holy. A declaration of faith in verse 3. Look what He says. Yet you are holy. You feel so far away, God. I am roaring like a lion here and you're silent I feel forsaken here. You've turned your face away. Yet, one thing I know, you're holy. You are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. Verse 4, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. Jesus draws strength from this on the cross because He knows that even though, yes, for a time, God has forsaken Him, and for a purpose and a reason, God is holy. God is trustworthy. And He has proven over and over again that He will rescue those who cry, that He will deliver those who are in trial of some kind. And so, I want to say this. I believe that if Jesus... If we could have asked Jesus a question on the cross back then, if you were sitting there and you were watching Jesus and you heard Him, this darkness fell over the land and you heard Him say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe if you could have asked Him a question, you could have said, Jesus, can God still be trusted? Do you know what He would have said? Yes, He can be trusted. Yes, He should be trusted. We have cried before and He has delivered. We have been in bondage before and He has saved. He is holy and He can be trusted. And so we see a declaration of faith there on the cross. And then in verses 6-8, through eight, this leads to a disgusting sight. Verses 6-8, through eight, we see a disgusting sight. Look at what it says. Jesus is brought to the humility of a worm, not even a man. This is how far His humility goes. And so in verse 6, He says, But I am a worm and not, a, not even a man. I am scorned by mankind, despised by the people. And in verse 7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. 
And so we see this disgusting sight as they turn our Lord and Savior into not even a man, but to less than a man. They humble Him to the point of He feels like a worm. Like a worm. And we see this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, verse 29 through 44. Look at these Scriptures as we see this actually take place where He is mocked by everyone. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 29. Look at what this says. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on His head, and they put a reed in His right hand. And kneeling before Him, they what? They mocked Him. So here the soldiers mock Him, right? Saying, Hail the King of the Jews! And they spit on Him, and they took the reed, and they struck Him on the head. And when they had mocked Him, they stripped Him of the robe. They, they literally they caused Him to be nude. Not only was this the shame of the mocking, but now here He is in front of all of them nude. No clothes on. And they led Him away in nudity to crucify Him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left, and those who passed by derided him. So first it's the soldiers. Now it's everybody who passes by. They wagged their heads at him saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also, the chief priests with the scribes and elders did what? Mocked Him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Him also what? Reviled Him in the same way. Here again, you see the ultimate fulfillment of this disgusting sight. As the Son of Man, the Son of God, the only righteous person that has ever lived, He now is bearing your sins. He is bearing the burden of your separation from God. He takes it on Himself and becomes the curse for you. And in the process of that, He's not even treated like a man, but He's treated and He's humiliated to the point of less than a man. As a matter of fact, a worm. They strip Him of everything. They lead Him down to be crucified naked. And then in the process of it, the soldiers deride Him and they mock Him. The chief priests, elders and scribes deride Him and mock Him. The robbers that are crucified with Him deride Him and mock Him all the way from the start to the finish of His crucifixion. We see this disgusting sight. And then in verse 9, again, He's drawing strength from this psalm. We see a devoted trust. A devoted trust in verses 9 through 11. Yet you are He who took me from the womb. 
you made me trust you at my mother's breast. Now, for those of you that like to study the Psalms, I want you to notice the progression here. He starts out and he says, Me, 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 but you, you, you. Me, 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 but you, you, you. Me, 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 but you, you, you. And every time we see this cry of complaint, we see this agony of pain being poured out to Him, but every time at the end of it, He comes back and He says, yes, I'm in the darkest time of my life, but you, but you are holy. You should be trusted. And then finally look at this devoted trust, this lifelong trust in verse 9. Yet you are He who took me from the womb, You made me trust You at my mother's breast. On You was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, You have been my God. A lifelong devoted trust. In other words, no matter what, if I'm no other way. And I know this is the darkest time that humanity has ever seen. There is no one that will ever face a darker time than what he's going through right now. And yet, even still, he says, I have trusted you. You made me trust you from the beginning. And I will continue to trust you. I have a lifelong devotion to you. No matter what you allow for me to go through, I trust you. And my question is, how many of us can have that same lifelong trust when we're in a dark trial of our life that's not even close to the comparison of what we're reading about here? But yet we should still be able to come back and draw strength from this to say, yet you are the one who has made me trust you from the time I was born. And then in verse 11, he just prays and he cries, be not far from me because trouble is near and there is no one, no one here to help. Christ Jesus had no one that stood with Him to help Him. And then next in verses 12-18, through we see a deadly enemy. This enemy is not satisfied by just humiliating Jesus. It's not enough to just bring Him down to the point of a worm. This enemy will not be satisfied until it has killed him. It must take his life. So let's take a look at it in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Now one of the things you need to understand here is that Bashan was a place that was known for the fattest of cows. For the fattest and the biggest of bulls. If uh, just one scripture to prove it to you, Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 18. It says, You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of, of he goats, of bulls, of all of them, fat beasts of Bashan. It was just a place that was known to have the strongest bulls and to have the fattest cows. And so whenever Jesus looks out and He sees His enemy that has encompassed Him or surround Him. This enemy is an enemy that is the strongest of... If you were to put the imagery of animals out here, they're the strongest of bulls. And you might know if any of you have ever been around cattle or bulls, you know that bulls usually have a reputation of being friendly. Bulls usually have a reputation of uh, 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 the little bull we've got at, at, at our little farm there. You go out there and you try to touch him on his nose. 
I'm talking about that's the maddest you can make him. Just go out there and touch him on his nose. He starts throwing that head and slinging snot and, I mean, kicking paws. He can't stand for you to do something nice to him. And so bulls are just known to have this reputation of their mean. They're there to attack. And so whenever he looks out at this enemy, he sees an enemy of the strongest bulls that there are, the meanest bulls that they are, and they surround him. When Jesus looks around, he's surrounded by a deadly enemy. And not only that, but they're not just strong bulls. They're like lions with their mouths open and their teeth ready to ravish him. Look at verse 13. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. These are... This is an enemy that surrounds him that is not going to be satisfied until they have tore him to shreds. This is the least that they will accept. And then in verse 15, he goes on and he says that this is an enemy that has took all of his strength away from him. The God of all creation is drained of his strength because of this deadly enemy. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. Basically, instead of being like a green limb or, or, or something with life in it, this pot's herd is something that easily crumbles. And that's the way his strength feels like at this moment. It's to the point that it's just so easily crumbled. And then not only that, but my tongue sticks to my jaws. And if you were to go to John chapter 19, verse 28, You'll see that after this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. My tongue sticks to my jaws. And then in verse 15, back in Psalm 22, He says, You lay me in the dust of death. Literally, you have brought me to the grave. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Here he goes back to the imagery of animals around him. Now back in this day, dogs weren't like what we have dogs today. Most of us have a dog in our house today that sleeps with us in our bed at night. A lot of us. That's not the way it was back then. Dogs in this day and time were scavengers. They were hunters. They were basically like coyotes and wolves of the fields today. And they surrounded an enemy for one reason to kill it, to destroy it. And dogs encompass me, a company. And here we, he explains this imagery and he interprets it for you. He says these dogs that encompass him are a company of evildoers that have encircled him. He is hanging on the cross and he is surrounded by a company of evildoers. And then notice what they have done to him at the end of verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I can count all of my bones. Now one thing about crucifixion you need to understand is that they stretched you out to the point so that literally the weight of your body, it caused your bones to protrude out and you ultimately ended up suffocating to death is what happened. It was a very slow, cruel death. And in this crucifixion, I believe one of the things you're seeing right here is Jesus was suffering to the point that He could literally look down and every one of His bones, He could count them. He could tell you, this is how many bones are right here. And they stare and they gloat over Me. Verse 18, they divide My garments among them and for My clothing they cast lots. 
And so we see in all of this right here that Jesus suffered more than any other man because He became the curse for us. Because He bore the sins that we had committed in His own body. Because God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that you and I could receive and become the righteousness of God. This great exchange that took place on the cross. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 and 15, it says this, As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and His form was marred beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall He sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And the point in that being is that the Scriptures told us from Isaiah that His image, His visage would be marred beyond human resemblance. That you would not be able to tell who He was after the suffering that He endured. Verse 19 through 21, we have a deliverance from death. God doesn't leave Him here. It seems like God is far off. It seems like God has forsaken Him forever. But guess what? God's not far away. God is coming quickly. God is going to rescue and save just like Jesus trusted that He would, just like He always has. And so in verse 19, notice He moves from His suffering to again, to this, yet you, but you, Lord. And so in verse 19, He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, and save me from the mouth of the lion. And then I love the transition that takes place at the end of verse 21. Do y'all see it? You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I love this. Jesus prays, says, Lord, don't be far from me. Why have you forsaken me? Come quickly. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. And then at the end of it, here He is. Jesus has been saved. God did come quickly. He did deliver His soul and His life from the enemy. He did deliver His soul from the sword, His life from the power of the dog, and He saved Him from the mouth of the lion, and He has rescued Him from the horns of the wild oxen. And basically what we see here is the resurrection. We see the death in the first part of it, and then we see that God didn't leave Him there, but God saved Him. And we see the resurrection take place I love, again, when we sung that song, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It is finished. My sin has been laid on Him and my ransom has been paid because He became a curse for me. Because He bore my sins in His body on the tree. He is the one that became sin 
so that I might become the righteousness of God. And then finally in verse 22 through 31, we have a determined praise. A determined praise. Notice what he says. Because God has placed our sin on Him, because He took our place on the cross, because... Uh, and we'll, we'll read the rest of it here in a minute. But here's the determined praise in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I'm going to tell everybody about what you've done for me. I will tell the world. I will proclaim your name. Let me tell you something. When you understand the exchange that God has made between you and Jesus, you ain't ashamed of it. You are not ashamed of it. I know it. I believe it. I know that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me, the ungodly. And I believe it with all of my heart. And I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, notice what he says next, I will praise you. A determined praise. I'm going to praise you. And as a matter of fact, everybody that hears this message ought to praise you is what he's going to keep saying. Notice what he says next in verse 23. You who fear the Lord ought to praise Him. All you offspring of Israel ought to glorify Him. You ought to stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. In verse 24 he says, here's why. Because He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden His face from Him, but He has heard when He cried to Him. God has heard our cry. God heard the cry of Jesus, and God answered. And God has heard our cry, and He has answered. And because He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction, because He's not hidden His face from us, but He has heard when we cried, we ought to praise Him. We ought to praise Him. Look at verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. You see how he's just building this to the point that as I tell of your name and as we proclaim this message throughout all the world, it ought to cause people to turn to you. It ought to cause people to praise you and stand in awe of you. And then notice what he says in verse 28. Here's why. Because kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. Verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Listen, everybody's going to bow to Him. Everybody's going to praise Him. Everybody's going to worship Him. Even the one who could not keep himself alive is going to bow their knee to Him. And verse 30, As you spread this word, posterity shall serve Him. In other words, His seed. He's not dead. He's alive. He has a seed that continues on. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. We're going to keep telling this message. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. And finally, at the end of it, what is the message that we are proclaiming? That He has done it. Read it. It 
is finished. That was the last words He proclaimed on the cross for He gave up His Spirit. It is finished. What did He mean by it is finished? Well, let me tell you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 through 18. This is my closing. <clears throat> when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. You know why He sat down? And He sat down waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. We're still fighting with that enemy right now a little bit, ain't we? For by a single offering... Here's why He sat down. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You want to know how you know if you're perfect or not? It's not if you are sinless. Because it's not by your goodness that you become perfect. It's by Him bearing your sins on the cross and Him giving you His righteousness. And so you want to know how you know if you're perfect? If you're being sanctified. Do you see the sanctifying work of Christ in your life? Do you see that He's changing you and He's making you more like Him and less like you? Do you see that He's destroying sin and He's bringing His own life to life in you? Do you see the sanctifying work? Because He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me tell you something. I am perfect today in the sight of God. Not because God sees me as sinless but because by a single sacrifice, Christ finished the work. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this. Now let's see how the Holy Spirit bears witness to it. What does He say? This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. In other words, the sanctifying work, right? I'm going to work inside of you. I'm going to start leading you to follow Me to mortify sin in your flesh and live for righteousness. Then He adds, as this sanctifying work is taking place in your life, guess what? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds for how long? <laughs> Vance, brother, this fifth Scripture right here means more to me than anything in this world. I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Why? Because you're perfect? No, because He finished the work. For by one sacrifice for offering of sins, He has perfected all those who are being sanctified. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Church, I have one message for you this morning. It is finished. It is finished. The work that was required for you and I to be saved and to be made right with God is finished. One last Scripture. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Because you asked me the question, Preacher, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Sounds more like Easter. Well, let me explain something to you. Christmas happened for one primary reason. 
the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And why else did He come? Church, this is what Christmas is all about. When you worship that beautiful little baby and you sing Happy Birthday Jesus, you need to remember, He came because there was a work that had to be done for your sake. And unless that work was done, unless He paid the price for your sin and for my sin, we are lost forever. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. And so it is my prayer that as you celebrate Christmas, that you're able to celebrate and say, God, thank You that it is finished. Thank You that what He came to do, He finished it. Thank You that my sins and my lawless deeds, You remember no more. And you know how I know that? Because I see the sanctifying work of Christ in my life. And so my invitation to you is very simple. you got two responses this morning. Number one, you praise Him. I will tell of your name to all my brothers before the congregation. I will share your message of what you have done for me with everybody I come across. And I'm going to hope and pray that everybody will join me in praising you for what you have done. Or your response is, God, I need that sanctifying work in my life. God, I believe that You died to save me from my sins. I confess You as Lord, and I trust that today as I put my faith in You, You're going to save me, and I will be able to praise You with the congregation. Those are the two responses for you today. And it would be a shame for you to try to celebrate Christmas without responding in one of those two ways. And so I pray this morning that whatever it is the Lord has spoke to you, that you would come and let us help you as we stand and we sing.